Hey, this is Rod Cleef, and you are listening to the Mailbox Money Show with Bronson Hill. This is the Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. All right, so I am so excited for this interview. This is my good friend, Mark Moss. He's an amazing guy. If you don't know Mark Moss, he has like 500,000 followers on YouTube and he just, everything he says is so profound. Like the guy just talks about the economy, he talks about the world, he talks about economics, he talks about, then he breaks it down into how it impacts your daily life. So we're gonna talk about the changing world order. We're gonna talk about Bitcoin. We're gonna talk about the Fed. We're gonna talk about investing and rates and all the stuff. So it's gonna be awesome. So you're gonna love this interview with Mark Moss. Let's jump in. All right, Mark Moss, welcome to the show. Excited to have you today. Yeah, thanks, Bronson. Always a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. Hey, man, we had you at uh, our event, the Advanced Real Estate Investing Summit in October, and uh, we're recording this at the end of uh, 2023. And as you were saying, a lot of things you talked about are starting to come true. Um, now, for a lot of people that don't know you, can you give a little background about your, your business background and what happened in 2008 and kind of what brought you to become such a student and, and teacher of, of economics and, and investing? Yeah, you know, I would say as far as like what led me to become such a student, it's like um, just I I love education as somebody who didn't want to go to school and didn't want to learn what they wanted me to learn. I I love what I need to learn. And so I've always kind of approached it as like a just in just in time sort of education. So people will be like, hey, what book should I read? And it's like, well, what are you trying to learn? Right. So it might be a book on human resources or hiring. It could be marketing, could be business development, could be markets. Um, and so, you know, I had started my career, boom, right into real estate, 18 years old, buying bank owned repos, fixing, flipping, developing, all of that. Started multiple businesses, uh, medical business, tech business, exits. I mean, I just came out of the gate hot and just crushed it. 2008 was a was a rude awakening, let's say, uh, to say the least. Um, you know, in, in Southern California, which is where I'm at, um, real estate dropped as much as 60%. And, uh, being uh, the student that I was, well, I wasn't a big student, not like I am today, but back then I had looked at the only time California real estate had crashed was from 89 to 92. And during that four-year period, it was about a 30% crash, but the worst six-month drop was about 6%. So I was like, well, what if it was double the worst? What if it was, what if it was triple the worst in history? 18%, eh, no big deal. What if it was quadruple the worst? Eh, I can handle that. Let's go, right? Uh, 60% in a year. And so it was just like... Um, Mark Twain said, it's not the things that you know for certain that get you in trouble, or it's not the things you don't know that get you in trouble, it's the things that you know for certain. And so it's like, okay, well, this is the worst. Certainly, it can't be more than four times the worst, but it certainly was. It was. Um, and so it made me just realize, like, dang, I'm pretty good at, like, making money. Obviously, I've done really, really well. I understand a lot of these things, but there's this like whole global macro financial system that I just don't know about. And apparently, it has control over my life. Uh, so I should probably figure that out. So it's been, you know, back to this just-in-time sort of education system. It's like I needed to know that and I need to know it quick. And so then I've spent the last like 12 years sort of sort of uh, just, just studying that. It's like no matter how good you want to be in your business, whatever your business may be, imports, exports, selling stuff on Amazon, and, you know, developing products, real estate, it doesn't really matter. If you don't understand the financial system, more importantly, the the financial cycles that are around that, 
it's going to adversely affect your your business. And so you better figure that out. And so I spend my time focusing on, on business and, and economics. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's 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 kind of like the things you don't know can hurt you. And, uh, you know, it's like you said, what you know, for certain, if you know something's okay, if it's if it's this bad, I'll be okay. But just all the time in history, there's things that are happened that are that are totally unprecedented. There's no like things we're seeing now are having zero interest rates or negative rates. I mean, it's just stuff we haven't seen. Um, you said something interesting at the the conference, you had your the three certainties, right? You know, death, taxes, and inflation. I know I talk yeah. a lot about inflation, but um, you know, talk to us. You mentioned about uh, Yellen saying something about you know we're going to be back to kind of a one percent type of situation, or you know, you had some data that showed that she made a comment that showed that she was thinking that we're going to be basically back to almost zero rate uh, or close, you know, one percent within a short period of time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we can certainly talk about that. So yeah, I had talked about she had, she had recently come out and said right before that event that um, that interest on the debt would be about 1% of GDP for the rest of the decade. So the interest on the debt, so for those uh, that aren't paying that close of attention, uh, the interest on the debt, the 33, almost $34 trillion now, we're adding about a trillion dollars every 90 days at this point. Wow. Um, so on that 39, uh, I'm sorry, $34 trillion, um, the interest on the debt is the bond issuance. So when the Fed raised the interest rate, it raised the interest payments on that debt. Uh, and we exceeded the interest on the debt exceeded, uh, what the United States spends on its military. And wow. for those that don't know, the United States spends more than the next 10 countries in a row on its military. So when you add China, Russia, and the next 10 countries, we spend more than all that. So to spend more on just the interest is a pretty big deal. Um, and so this sort of goes back into sort of just my line of thinking. And the reason why I talked about it at your event is that we we can all look we can all look at sort of these short-term indicators that we have in front of us and then think about what might the Fed or the you know monetary policies be because of these short-term things like you know, the economy, recession, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know commercial real estate mortgage market, things like that. Uh, but we have to understand things at a second, third, fourth level, and then we have to understand what the constraints are there. And so uh, the government has to continue to spend more money. They have to continue to borrow in order to do that. Um, and uh, the more they continue to borrow, as I said, now we're at a trillion dollars every 90 days, uh, they have to be able to afford that borrowing. And so the rates can't just keep going up, nor can they stay higher for longer, as the Fed told us they would, because the Treasury can't afford that. So she said, back to what I said, 1% of GDP over the next decade, the rest of this decade. And so the math on that was in order to be able to get the interest on the debt down to 1% of GDP, uh, barring some sort of like uh, – you know, fusion fuel, um, you know, invention where un, uh, productivity is just massively unleashed. So barring some sort of a miracle like that, uh, basically the Fed would have to bring rates down to, is it 0.8 mm. in order to be able to get that 1% average? Yeah. Is that something that Yellen was asked specifically about that or did nobody really captured the comment that she, when she shared that, was there been some like questions or follow-ups or pushback to that of like- I haven't seen any. I mean, it seemed like it's, it basically sort of went unnoticed in my opinion. Uh -huh. um, I mean, I saw a few obscure, I mean, I, I scour, right? So I, I seen uh -huh. a, a few obscure news sources, alternative news sources uh, talk about it. It was Reuters. It was a Reuters article that first picked it up. 
I've seen a couple people sort of pick it up and dig into it, but it, it's not something that's like widely uh, talked about. Obviously, none of the legacy media wants to talk about that, right? Obviously, right. Uh, the Fed, it, you know, if you understand how the Fed and the Treasury works, I mean, most of what they do is just verbal. Yeah. And so this is where I sort of have gripes with some of the intellectuals in the financial space is they tell you things that are factually accurate, but they're intellectually dishonest. And this is a, a perfect example of that, right? And so what happens is what we saw just in November, we saw the markets take off and blow to these you know, crazy levels in November. But what changed? Well, the market loosened up. How did the market loosen up? Fed didn't change Fed rates. They didn't change bank. How, how did the markets loosen? It was because of the Fed speak. It was the job owning. They talked the markets down. Mm -hmm. And so technically, they didn't do anything. They didn't change rates. They didn't do anything. What they did was they said something, but by saying something actually does something as well. So they use Fed speak, or we call it job owning the market. They talk the rates down. We're going to be lowering rates. Mm -hmm. And so then the markets start moving in anticipation of what they're doing. And so if the Fed says, hey, we're going to backstop all the loans that the bank writes, Go ahead, banks, write as many loans as you want. You have zero risk. If any of your debts go bad, we'll backstop it. Well, they technically didn't do anything, mm -hmm. but do you think the banks would change their lending oh, policy? Totally. Of yeah. course. And so just by saying something, this is the point where I get into, like I said, these, these, these intellectuals, um, they tell you correct things, but it doesn't tell you the whole picture. And so anyway – what we saw is like the Fed was still on this higher for higher for longer. We still haven't won the war on inflation. And so they couldn't let Janet Yellen's, you know, talk sort of get out there. But I made a video back in shoot. I don't remember. It, it, it was probably close to a year ago. It might've been like February of this year where I, I basically said the Fed and the treasury are at war. The Fed and the treasury are fighting each other and the treasury is going to win every time. And I sort of, I sort of framed this up and basically the battle is that the Fed was trying to regain composure, not composure but really credibility in the markets. Uh, they wanted to tell people, they want people to believe that they have power, they have control over the markets, they needed the credibility. They had to get inflation back down to 2%, etc., but the treasury was never going to let that happen. Treasury, right. The treasury has to take on more money. And so this was this battle that was shaping up. These are these natural constraints. And so anyway, back to your question. I, I think that's probably why it was not widely talked about. They didn't want that to be known at that time. Now things have shifted. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, we live in a world, I, I didn't really realize this until COVID, but, you know, watching the movie, The Social Dilemma, and just seeing how we're pushed, you know, right and left, and we're pushed into different camps. And it, But, you know, there is this mainstream media that just tells you really what you want to hear. And I'm not a huge conspiracy. And we have friends I know that are like, kind of like doom, like the, the sky is falling, the world's going to end tomorrow. And then other people are kind of like all the, you know, people on mainstream media is like, oh, everything's going to continue as normal. I'm kind of between those two, you know, we're kind of like, yes, things are, are, are there's some rough stuff coming, but it's, you know, it, it, I think we've talked about this too. Like, you know, the, we're probably not going to lose our reserve currency for quite a while, right? We have some time. It, it generally takes dozens of years or, you know, Maybe decades. Multiple decades. Yeah. yeah, Greg. Yeah. Uh, what do you see for uh, investors? Obviously, my background's real estate investing, multifamily. There's been some, you know, obviously we haven't, haven't had a bloodbath, but there's been some real issues with value add real estate, particularly multifamily where, uh, you know, buyers coming in, if, you know, stuff is occupied less than 90%, these people have to be, you know, using bridge debt, which is 9 to 12% type of debt coming in. Um, do, do you see... Um, 
I mean, I guess, you know, when rates come down, do you see that being kind of more of a gradual thing? Or do you think there will be some sort of crisis that obviously nobody knows, but do you have some opinions on kind of how this will play out over the next 12, 24 months? Uh, yeah, so um, I made a video in, it was two or three months ago, and it's titled, Warning This Time is Different. Because we're always ah. told it's not different, right? It's yeah. going to be different, and it's not. <laughs> I made a video titled that, so, so if, you, if you're interested, you should go, go watch that on YouTube. And the reason why it's important to watch that video, or just to understand this point that I'll make, is that the way that the Federal Reserve and the central banks have interacted in the markets today is different. All right. So when you're looking at financial data pre-2008, you don't understand the new paradigm that we're in. That's a very big deal. So quantitative easing, the Fed basically buying, you know, mortgage-backed securities, buying bonds, you know, interacting in the market started in 2008. They didn't do that before. But it's changed a lot since then. So in that video, I basically broke down, here's how they intervene in 2008. For example, when Bear Stearns collapsed, which was really the trigger point for sort of most people call it the trigger point for that 2008 financial collapse. It took seven months before the Fed or before the government okayed any type of stimulus. In March of 2023, when the banks collapsed, how long did it take? Six days. <laughs> okay. So we, since we can see that the way they enter. So back to uh, in 2006, home starts had fallen off 26%. 26% Bronson that is massive yeah. imagine Huge. home starts dropping by that much and it didn't it took 30 months before the fed even lowered rates yeah okay so now what we're seeing today instead of 7 months it took 6 days to get a bank bailout program and now we're not waiting 30 months to lower rates we're doing it right now and yeah. so what's happening is if you look back and people are going to say, oh, you know, whenever the Fed pivots, it crashes markets. No, no, no. The Fed pivot doesn't crash markets. The markets are already crashing. So the Fed pivots. Yeah. Right. It's the chicken or the egg or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, Causation, yeah. not correlation. The markets are already crashing, which is why they pivot. And so then they're reactionary. It's too little, too late. What they're doing now. And again, I break this all down in this video. Uh, what they're doing now, though, is that they're preemptively moving. Mm -hmm. So it's a big deal. So yeah. anyway, back to where I think things are going. Um, I mean, you know, I don't have any uh, insights more than what most people have. You know, I don't have a crystal ball here, but it looks like they're price. You know, the market are pricing in a, a point, point and a half uh, reductions next year, um, which I think are pr probably pretty reasonable, um, and realistically might not be enough. So I think there's some data that's going to come out next month that's going to scare the Fed a little bit. Uh, I'm thinking that they're going to see that deflation is happening much faster than they thought. And they have basically, they look at not just, they don't really look at CPI, but they look at the PCE data. And it looks like their target for the end of 2024 is 2.4%. My guess is we're going to be way undershooting that, which means that they can't have a year target happen in months. And that'll probably scare them and they might end up you know, again, trying to preemptively move, try to maybe even move faster, which is why the feds, I think they're hung on three rate cuts next year. And the markets are saying, no, 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 there's probably going to be six. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, rates are coming down. To be honest, I try to focus on sort of um, the direction of things and then longer moves. 
Um, I'm not a trader. I'm not trying to get in the market every day or every week and make moves. So like what happens at your, at your event, someone asked me, you know, where will rates be by the end of the year? And I'm like, that's in the next 60 days. Like who cares? Like who cares where yeah. things are in 60 days from now? Like you deal with multifamily, like a normal multifamily deal takes years. It takes you, yeah. I mean, it's five years, right? Like I want to know where things are in five years. I don't need to yeah. know where they're in 60 days. So that's sort of like my, you know, uh, my, my kind of, uh, my lens or my viewpoint, but it looks like, uh, probably, you know, point, point and a half this next year. Um, but again, it's the direction of change. And here's why it's a bigger thing, Bronson, is because I think there's a, there's even something much bigger um, at play in the world right now that most people haven't really picked up on. I know you've, you know, come to my events and listen to my content for a while. So you've heard me talk about it, but the world is changing, right? We have these three revolutionary cycles that are converging. And really what we're seeing is the world is breaking apart. It is putting a lot of a lot of strain onto the U.S. dollar to to the point that you asked about the reserve currency. Um, the, I gave a talk in uh, in Amsterdam in October, and the title of the talk was "The End of the International Monetary Order." Mm -hmm. It wasn't the end of the U.S. dollar. It was the international monetary order. What we're witnessing, Bronson, is not just the end of the dollar. We're witnessing the end of fiat currency. And yeah. the reason why that's important to understand is because we're in about a 52-year experiment of paper money, yeah. but the world has been – 5,000 years of history has been commodity money, and now we're moving back to commodity money. And so what this means is that China bought half the lithium mines in the world. They don't want U.S. treasuries anymore. They'd rather have the minerals in the yeah. ground. And so what we're witnessing all over the world – is the world and mostly the smart money, the central banks right now, they just bought a thousand tons of gold last month. Like it's insane. Oh, the wow. world, the smart money, the central banks, it's a race to hard assets. Mm -hmm. And what they've been doing is telling all the consumers, oh, it's going to crash. You should sit in cash. Go sit in cash while they're buying all the hard assets. And so what we're witnessing Ludwig von Mises, arguably the, the godfather of the Austrian School of Economics, he calls it the crack-up boom. And it says, and then suddenly the people realize that inflation is both permanent mm -hmm. and uh, both permanent and intentional. Mm -hmm. When the people realize inflation is both permanent and intentional, then they'll lose trust in the currency and they'll go out and try to buy hard assets as fast as they can. And I think that's what's happening, which is why even though we're going through this tightening, even though rates – raise at the fastest rate in history, real estate didn't sell off. Yeah. Stocks didn't sell off. The world is realizing these financial assets are heavily manipulated. We want to buy real things. And so I think, you know, whatever happens with the rates, I mean, they'll come down point, point and a half. But I think the trend is that people are going to want to start buying hard assets and that's going to continue. Yeah, no, it is. I've, I've wondered why it hasn't happened sooner. You know, we do a lot of hard assets. They do a lot of, we're talking about gold and, and I know you're a Bitcoin guy. I want you to talk about that a little bit too. Um, let's, let's talk for a little bit, just kind of bigger theoretical here. I know there's a big movement to end the fed. You know, I know Ron Paul and a lot of people talk about, you know, his movement to try to end the fed. I mean, what would, what do you think, like, if we were like, you and I were in charge, we're going to fix all this. Uh, like, what would you, what would you, how would you go about that? And would you, I know if you have, you know, a lot of people that are truly Austrian economics, it's like, it's gotta be all it's all gold or it's a representation of gold. There's no credit. Credit becomes much more difficult, right? Because you don't truly have credit. If I understand Austrian economics correctly, I may be misunderstanding it, but um, like, what would you, what would you create in place of what is here? Is it just simply, uh, you know, we have dollar, you can go get credit, but it's limited or how do you, how do you, is credit no longer a thing or how does that work within a Austrian or, or more of a hard money type of thing? 
Well, no, credit's always there. There's always going to be credit. Like you can't get rid of credit. Um, the difference is, is credit, uh, and and Mises framed it up as commodity credit versus circulation credit. And so, what what does that mean? Uh, that means that if I um, let's say that I'm growing wheat and I harvest ten bushels of wheat, I might need to sell five bushels, and then I have uh, five bushels left over. I might say, hey, Bronson, I'll give you credit on two of these bushels, and I'll give someone else credit on two of these bushels. But the the the, the credit comes from my savings. Right. Right? So that's, that's what we'd call commodity credit. So right. if I earn more than – if I earn more than I spend and I have savings – we're always people, humans, we're always going to want to lend out that savings to get a better rate of return. Sure. So there's always going to be savings. The difference is, am I say, am I, am I producing or am I giving credit based off of my savings versus are we artificially creating money out of thin air? Right. Right. So that's the difference. Uh, so we'll, we, we've always had credit <laughs> again. We're in about a 52 year, um, you know, sort of fiat money experiment. Granted it's about a hundred years because the federal reserve was created in 1913, we can go back to the Bank of England even further, but since about 1913, but we were on a gold standard until 1971 where that basically got broken. So then we were able to print unlimited. So we were still fractionally reserving. We were still printing more money than we had base money for, but in 1971, that got that got ended. So there's always going to be credit. There was always credit before. There will always be credit moving forward, uh, but it'll be off of those hard assets. Now, uh, how would I do things? I think it's important to understand, one, we're sort of seeing this experiment play out in real time right now in Argentina. Yeah. Um, so with uh, new the new president down there, Millier or whatever, however yeah, you pronounce his name, um, he's a hardcore libertarian, uh, Austrian economist, and he's basically slashing everything. Um, the problem that I, I see that I, I don't know necessarily there, but what could happen is doing too much too soon. We are in a debt-based monetary system. So to go from a debt-based monetary system to a sound monetary system, like you just can't do that overnight. That right. would just destroy everything. It would be massive devastation. Like people would be starving to death. It'd be horrible. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get into this overnight. We can't get out of it overnight. So if if I was uh, have a task to sort of uh, bring this around, I think probably the first thing I would do is I would just allow competition to take place. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Bitcoin is sort of like this competition, but other assets are as well, which is why people buy real estate or buy gold, et cetera. Right. They realize that I can't hold my savings in this fiat currency. So I'll go into something else. So I think really allow these other types of uh, competition like Bitcoin and really sort of push that because what happens is not everybody makes the switch and slowly but surely. And that's why with Bitcoin, we sort of call it like this, the life rafts, the life rafts, like the ship's going down. Let's get as many people off the ship as we as we can. And so I think it, you know over a period of time, good money drives out bad. So over time, people will leave the deflationary money. I'm sorry, the inflationary money, um, and they'll go find other forms of money. So I think that would allow it to transition. You know, I'd probably you know make the government go to uh, a budget, you know, some sort of austerity, so they can't continue to print, or I'm sorry, not continue to take on so much debt, which would then lower the amount of printing that we do. So the goal would be to try to slow that down so the money creation basically stops and mm -hmm. maybe not like overnight but you know over a period of time wow. trying to really slow that slow that. i mean you would think like how bad was the world in 2019 was it like devastation like we lived in squalor and squander and dirt no like the world was pretty good but yet we're spending more than 50 percent. we the government the government's spending more spending more than 50 percent more money today than 2019 couldn't we just go back to 2019 spending levels I mean, how bad was yeah. the world in 2019? Like, could we just go back to that? Um, 
Now we can't because now they've added all that money in. And so to go back to it, now they got to fire all these people and change all these people's lives. So that's a big problem, but we could probably just stop. Yeah. How about let's, so how about let's not <laughs> increase our spending another 50%, like go back to, you know, if we just imagine if we left at 2019, it would be pretty, pretty good. So one introduce competition that sort of uh, starts offloading people into a new system um, to try to, you know, stop government spending, which is what Melia has done. He's, cut like 80% of the government, you know, sort of uh, programs and, and positions, um, stop that um, government increase in spending. Um, so that'd be probably be two things that I would do. Yeah, no, it's like, I think it's interesting to say not do everything at once, because I think a lot of people that, you know, kind of in the camps that we're in want to just, everything has to happen right away. We're going to do this. And it's, um, but we are spending so much that it's hard to just turn it off. I mean, now we have such a debt-based system that requires all this money is being spent. Um, I know one thing I really admire about you, Mark, is that you are, as you described the quote of, you know, starting fires, uh, brush fires in the minds of men. And I just wondering, like, if someone, obviously we can do things for ourselves, you know, we can invest, we can, you know, do things to kind of set ourselves up, but what are things we can do kind of to influence the, the greater culture, our friends and family to get them to see really what's happening and really say, I want to, I want to actually change this, or I want to bring positive changes to this and not just go on the road that we feel like we have to go down. Well, I mean, it all starts with, you know, education, but at, at, at some point you have to be motivated to get the education. So, you know, there's part of that. And unfortunately for most of us, we have to sort of hit rock bottom, which is maybe what happened to me in 2008. Like it was so drastic. I had to take big action towards that. Right. Uh, but I think it all starts with, with education and kind of to what the quote you just said about starting brush fires in the minds of men. What I try to recommend everyone to do is like, if you're watching these videos, um, or podcasts or whatever it is that you're doing, like go discuss it, right? That's the starting brush fires in the minds of men. Like, don't just take this and go, oh, that was like pretty good. Like go discuss it, go discuss it with your coworkers, your friends, your, your spouse, whatever. Um, and then start to spread those brush fires. Um, that's what I would try and do. Uh, but ultimately it just comes down to, you know, first needing some sort of motivation. Like I am not happy with the way things are going, I would like to have a better world. I understand that if I don't do anything differently, then I don't get a different outcome. So I should do something differently. What education do I need? And then, like I said, really like spreading that information. Um, I think that's, that's the real key. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's, it's interesting too, with the, the main media and even the way with social media, they've kind of censored things and certain stuff is being called false. I think we were kind of trying to start to get back to uh, you know, I don't know, just to actually being able to have freedom of speech anymore. I feel like, you know, our friend Jason Hartman is like, you know, that's one of the biggest risks to our culture is really not having, uh, you know, free speech. Uh, can you talk, I want before we wrap, I want to just talk a little bit, you kind of got me thinking, and I think it's just a really cool, the way you described, you've had some, some videos that talk about this too, where you talk about, you know, you have central governments that are in, you know, like every government is here. And then above central governments, you have things, international organizations like the IMF and the uh, the World Bank and other things like that. And then at the top, you've got the Bank of International Settlements. I think a lot of people really aren't aware of the Bank of International Settlements and kind of the power that they have. And I know recently they reclassified gold as a tier one asset, which happened kind of, I think in 2019 uh, or maybe 2020. And so, you know, can you talk about the significance of the Bank of International Settlements? Who runs that? Is the agenda, is it is it the Klaus Schwab agenda? Is it is there some other agenda that's there? Why does that exist? And, and kind of the power that they have? Yeah, so I think the first thing I would say is, um, 
there's a lot of agendas. The way that I sort of view the world is there's not like one guy or one group of guys controlling <laughs> things. It's not like the Rothschilds have had power for, you know, 500 years or whatever it is. Um, I, the way that I look at it is there's lots of people that are doing lots of things. And I look at it, I would, I would, I'm sure everybody has seen like a flock of birds, like flying in like a V formation at some point. Right. And it's not like the birds all got together and Hey, Larry, you're going to be over there in third row on the left. And Bob, you're going to be over there on the right. Like, no, it's just like, they just, kind of take off and they just sort of fly together. And so that's sort of what I think the world is sort of being run sort of like that, because most of these people all went to the same schools. They all learn from the same people. They all share the ideology. Mm. And so um, if you've played soccer your whole life under one coach, I've played soccer my whole life and one coach, we can get on the field and sort of like play together because we just instinctively can like read and and play. Right. And so I think that's sort of how the world is. It's like all these people went to the same schools. They learn under the same people and they share the same ideology. And so they all work and react sort of similar. That bird moves over here. He goes with him. And sort of in our world where it's like, hey, this group wants to do censorship or digital IDs, then, oh, this is that's a pretty good idea. I'll jump in with that. So it's not like super coordinated from that level other than they just share that information. Now, back to sort of the question about the BIS, Bank of International Settlements, um, Henry Kissinger, who taught most of these people, he just recently died. Um, and I won't say RIP, he's probably one of the greatest war criminals ever in history. Um, just look it up if you want to know why. Um, he famously said, uh, and he he taught Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum as well, uh, but he famously said that um, control the food, you control the people, control the energy, control the continent, control the money, you control the world. So it's no, no wonder that those are the three attack vectors that we see happening around the world to now. One, they're trying to control the food. You know, in California right here, they have uh, restaurants are paying a 30% tax on pork because they fart too much or whatever, right? It's like they want to control the food. They want to they want to control what they spray on the food, what type of food we can have. They're trying to put carbon tax on beef in a lot of countries. They're trying to cull the cows in New Zealand and Holland to control the food. Uh, two, they want to control the energy. And so, you know, ESG mandates, things like that. Obviously, uh, just today I saw a headline, Biden's largest um, – Basically, uh, his largest package he put together to restrict the amount of oil we can get in the United States was put through today. Um, mm -hmm. And so they want to control the energy um, and then then the money. And so if you control the money, you control the world. Um, Rothschild, Mayor Rothschild said, um, give me control over nation's money. I care not who makes its laws. Mm -hmm. And so in this org chart, um, you sort of have the bank at the top, the BIS at the top, and then sort of everything falls under that, including all these nations. Because if I can control the money, I care not who makes the laws. Right. I don't care what law you have in Argentina or Lebanon or the U.S. because I'm controlling your money. Mm -hmm. And you don't do what we say, then no money for you sort of a thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, I would say that I think that is starting to change some and this goes into my deglobalization thesis back to these three revolutionary cycles that are that are converging uh, financial, um, technological and political. And, you know, you're starting to see, you know, China starting to pull out of that move over here. You got the BRICS nation starting to sort of maybe want to kind of do something over there. You got Russia going on over there. And that's starting to sort of break up that power that we've had. Um, so in my opinion, that's that's a good thing. Um, you know, these. The Chinas, the Russias, they're they're not they're they're never going to get along. They're never going to go along with that. So you do have the Bank of International Settlements. As far as who's behind it, you know, it's it's shielded in secrecy. To be honest, um, it was started after World War II as a way to sort of control like war reparations and payments and things mm -hmm. like that. And it, 
if you look under, you know, basically you sort of have the West and the West is, is Europe, the UK, Europe, the, uh, you know, Canada, United States, Australia, et cetera. So all of that is like sort of under this one banking regime with the BIS, but the rest of the world is starting to break apart, which again, like I said, is, is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, Mark, I, I always learn something when I talk with you, man. I so appreciate, especially your heart that you're really trying to impact people through your events, your mastermind that you run, your videos, all the things that you do. So, so appreciate your, what you're doing. How can people uh, reach out and follow what you're doing? Well, I'm not hard to find. Just Google Mark Moss. <laughs> you can go uh, on my website, onemarkmoss.com, just the number one Mark Moss. I have everything linked. So, you know, wherever you like to get your info, I'm probably there. Radio, radio show, podcast, YouTube, um, you know, social media, um, things like that. So onemarkmoss.com, check it out. We'll have all those links in the show notes or down below. So thanks again, Mark, for being here. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks, Brosnan. All right. Well, I love Mark Moss. And one thing I like the most about him is that he's always looking for the opportunity within a challenge, right? He's always looking for what is available. What does this create? And everything, you know, every, uh, you know, action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? So if somebody is, is uh, you know, or something happens where things happen a certain way, he's thinking, you know, two, three, four, five steps down the road. What is this going? Where are we headed? What's going to happen? And so I love talking these these deep economic conversations because, uh, this stuff does change and sometimes it can happen very suddenly. There's a sudden move like you talked about eventually with uh, the Ludwig von Mises, uh, the idea of the crack up boom, right? Where people have a sudden shift to hard assets, right? They go from, uh, you know, everybody's in, in currency and all of a sudden then they make this sudden shift, right? And that happens. And so uh, it's so important that you educate yourself. And I love Mark because his, I know his heart behind it is just to really try to help you and me learn and, and get better and grow. And because he's had multiple businesses, because he studies a lot of the economy, he's very, very uh, reputable, a lot, lot to love about him. So hope you enjoyed this interview. If you enjoyed this, please consider sharing this with someone else. We also have our investor group that we are uh, actively doing deals in the private equity space. We're doing multifamily, ATM machines, car washes, oil and gas, cash flowing type of deals and businesses. And so if you haven't joined our investment club, go to bronsonequity.com. You can click the join button below. And uh, thanks for taking the time to educate yourself look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the mailbox money show you've been listening to the mailbox money podcast for more free resources articles and videos go to bronsonequity.com there you can download your copy of the special report the single best investment strategy during and after a pandemic none of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment and this is for educational purposes only Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. Thanks for joining us and be sure to tune next time for more Mailbox Money.